Welcome to the Freedom and Captivity podcast, a podcast about abolitionist organizing and visioning in Maine. My name is Catherine Besteman, and I'm the host of the podcast, and today's episode is on abolition's history. What does the earlier abolitionist era have to do with current calls for abolition? What does abolitionism of the past teach us about how to envision and organize towards an abolitionist future? Today's podcast moderator for addressing these questions is Professor Marcel Medford, who teaches sociology and Africana studies at Bates College. Professor Medford will introduce the panelists who will be joining us today. Thanks so much, Professor Medford, for taking this on. Thank you for that warm welcome, Catherine. Um, I can say I'm pretty excited to be the hype woman for our panel today. Uh, We have uh, Daniel Mentor, artist and co-founder of Indigo Arts Alliance, Lydia Molin, professor of philosophy at Colby College, and Kate McMahon, a historian at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. So doing a brief introduction for you all, but I want to get us started uh, with each of you telling us a little bit about yourself and your work. So Lydia, let's start with you. Uh, What an honor to be here uh, with all of you getting to talk about um, these very important topics. So, yeah, as you said, I'm a philosopher, but a couple of years ago, for various reasons having to do with political emergencies in my country, I decided to shift my research focus um, to look at the way women especially had worked to end injustices in earlier parts of American history. And by a stroke of great good luck, I came across Lydia Mariah Child, and I'm now um, writing a book about her um, that I hope will help us think about exactly, uh, Marcel, what you were just um, referencing, the way we can learn about how um, previous generations dealt with massive injustices in American society and what we might um, learn from them. So Lydia Mariah Child um, was born in 1802 in Medford, Massachusetts, and died in 1880 in Wayland, Massachusetts. So she spent most of her life in Massachusetts um, with a couple of years in Maine, actually, as a teenager, and then also in New York City um, in her middle age. And I think one of the reasons that she feels so relevant to me now, and especially at the beginning of this Freedom and Captivity Project, is that she was someone who lived during a time when there was a massive injustice going on in her society that she was vaguely aware of at the beginning of her life, but not really concerned with. And then at a certain point, she allowed evidence and arguments to convince her that she had to do something to address that injustice. And so I think a lot of us are in a similar situation probably when it comes to mass incarceration Um, I am still at the very beginning of learning about this myself, but I think many of us have the sense that something deeply wrong is happening and we feel like we need to learn more in order to um, address it. So child converted to abolitionism, which was the movement to end slavery um, in 1830. So as a relatively young adult, she was in her late 20s. And in 1830, she had already had an extraordinary American life. She had become something that was very unusual um, in that time, a nationally known female author. So she had published a very popular novel in her early 20s, and she'd gone on to publish another novel 
some very popular children's fiction, um, and also some self-help books that people really like. So at, eight, at the point of 1830, she was a nationally known name um, and had been sort of taken on as a darling of Boston high society. And then she encountered a man named William Lloyd Garrison, who was another white, well, he was a white abolitionist, who had spent a long time, many years, listening to black abolitionists, both in the Boston area and in the South, and had come away from that experience with a set of arguments and evidence that started to get through to some people, some white people in Boston, and Lydia Mariah Child was one of them. So in 1830, she heard Garrison speak. She realized um, that slavery was a massive evil that she had not gotten her head around before. And what she did next, I think, is also really interesting in the context of what we're talking about at the beginning of this Freedom and Captivity Project. She went away for three years and educated herself. So she spent years in a library reading about the politics of slavery, the history of slavery, um, moral arguments about slavery, economic arguments about slavery. And three years later, in 1833, she took those arguments, uh, brought them together, and published a book called An Appeal in Favor of That Class of Americans Called Africans. And this book was, it had chapters on each of those things, the politics of slavery, the economics of slavery, religious arguments, moral arguments, et cetera. And when she published it in 1833, it was a massive scandal. Your average white northerner was maybe vaguely uncomfortable with slavery, but in no way willing to confront the kind of evidence that she was presenting that it was an immediate evil that had to be eradicated as soon as possible. I mean, in effect, she was attacking religious authority, social authority, and the economic structure of her country. Um, and for that, uh, she was ostracized from Boston society and then um, essentially impoverished because her readership left her. People decided they didn't want to buy children's fiction from a radical. They didn't want to read house cleaning tips from a radical. Um, and she and her husband spent much of the rest of their lives um, impoverished by their commitment to ending slavery. She didn't let up. Uh, she dedicated really the rest of her life and all of her talents um, to publishing things against slavery. Um, she published something called the National Anti-Slavery Standard, which was a weekly uh, newspaper for the abolitionist movement. Um, but she also was very dedicated to trying to help on a human level. She helped fugitive slaves. Um, she agitated, but uh, she actually put herself physically between abolitionist speakers and anti-abolitionist mobs. Um, and she also was really dedicated to trying to help Black Americans tell their own stories. I bring this up in part because she often did that very imperfectly. So I in no way want to present her as a kind of new white hero, white savior that we should all look up to. Um, some things that she did were um, we really need to take issue with and learn from as not what we want to do. Um, but those were a, a few of the many ways that she, after deciding that she had to change her life, um, changed her life. She herself was very interested in prison reform, especially when she lived in New York. Uh, she wrote about prison reform. And one of my favorite quotes from her uh, is something like, when will we realize 
that society's ills are of our own making. So we're very quick to punish people without asking ourselves what of their ills are actually produced by society. And I think that's a, again, from what I understand, something really important to keep in mind when we think about um, abolition now. And the other thing I'll say, just because I'm, I'm so honored to be on a panel with an artist, um, that Lydia Mariah Child was a very artistic sensibility herself and really believed that art was necessary to a full human life and also to helping people understand how to fight injustice. Um, so I could say a lot more about that um, if you're interested, but I think she would love the fact that the Freedom and Captivity Project so explicitly includes artists and also encouraging incarcerated people themselves to make art. So I think she would have loved that. Thank you so much for that insight, Lydia. And I really do love that connection, right, between abolitionists, academics, and artists, right, and how central that is to cultivating an abolitionist practice. Kate, um, tell us about yourself and tell us about your work at the Smithsonian and how it relates to Maine's participation in and connection to the slave trade. So I began my understanding of Maine's racial history really um, thinking about how the contemporary has been shaped by the past um, and what has happened in the past and not only just what has happened, how has slavery shaped the state, how has how's race shaped the state of Maine. And when I began my, my research at USM, I really there was not a whole lot available to me in terms of finding out these answers specifically about Maine. Uh, we, we tend to be taught, at least in, in the public education that I received, that Maine was on the right side of the Civil War. <clears throat> and that's what we learn about slavery, uh, essentially, in the state of Maine. We learn about chattel slavery in the South, and, and we don't really uh, you know, complicate that at all. I first came across Maine's connection to the illicit slave trade actually sitting in the Library of Congress. So I came across the story of Captain Cyrus Libby of Scarborough, who was the captain of a vessel named the Porpoise. Uh, and that vessel in 1845 made a trip with four other American vessels to Mozambique. Uh, on behalf of Brazilian slave trader uh, Manuel Pinto da Fonseca in Rio de Janeiro. And so I began to wonder, was this the only case of this happening? And just lightly peeling back that layer, it exploded. And I began to see dozens and dozens of New England vessels engaged in the slave trade to Brazil and Cuba in the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s. Um, and so I have spent the last seven or eight years uh, researching this, and I have around 200 vessels that were um, from northern New England states that were engaged in the illicit slave trade. And currently I, I know that they transported, the vessels from Maine transported at least 18,000 people to Cuba uh, between 1850 and 1860 alone. The value of those people coming back to Maine 
uh, the, the value of that cargo was the equivalent of $330 million in today's money. So this constitutes, at the same time period, that uh, the, the main lumber industry was valued at $2 million uh, at this time, whereas this traffic was valued at $11 million uh, in 1855. So the, the amount of funds and capital that were flowing back to the state of Maine um, was massive. It was bigger than the timber industry. And of course, the timber industry and the slave trade are deeply intertwined too. So some of that is, is coming is part of this uh, timber industry's value. Uh, and so I have begun to find not only that there were uh, Africans being transported well into the early 1860s into Cuba during the American Civil War, by main ships who were crossing blockades. Uh, there were also mainers during throughout the period between 1820 and 1860 uh, actually transporting people who were indentured. And I used that quote, uh, you can't, people can't see me, but I'm quoting, uh, indentured to uh, back to Maine. Uh, and so we have at least several cases of indentured Africans who were illegally transported aboard slave ships back to the state of Maine during the period 60 years after slavery had been abolished in Maine. And so what does it mean? Not only do these people come to Maine and were forced, their migration was forced, their labor was forced, they were you know, forced into these unequal indenturements, but they were also um, the, the people that did this, the captains, never faced any consequences. The only person to ever face the full consequence of the law of the Act of 1820, which made uh, participation in the slave trade a capital offense, was from Portland. His name was Nathaniel Gordon. And he was hung in 1862 after transporting uh, over 900 people to Cuba aboard the Kittery built, Elliott built ship, uh, the Erie. These men that were the captains and the ship owners and the merchants were our finest citizens. Uh, you know, these are the men whose captain's houses we see all over northern New England. And we wonder, how did these men build these huge, massive, beautiful houses? Why did Ebenezer, how did Ebenezer Farwell build a huge Greek revival house in Vassalboro, of all places, in 1840? Well, it's because he made a massive amount of wealth trading enslaved people in Africa. Thank you so much for that, Kate. And, um, you know, there's so much there, as you said, that we will continue to unpack, uh, hopefully in this podcast and just sort of in the work, right, spurring other people to do uh, that work. Um, and I think you know, one of the things that, that you said that sort of really spoke to me was this idea of understanding sort of the role of slavery as sort of a system, right, of production, right, and not simply sort of reducing it to, right, a particular region, a particular space, right, but that, right, it is part of, right, this racial capitalism and this sort of racial endeavor and sort of really understand, right, the role um, that Maine played, right, in participating in that, right, and how our economy is structured by that um, as well. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, Daniel, you know, your work again, tell us about the work that you do. And, 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 and I, I know that so much of your work already is about race and space. 
Uh, and so can you tell us a little bit more about the Freedom Trail project that you're working on? Um, and, you know, it, it, it's just so beneficial to sort of have that knowledge, right, about race baked into our landscape, much as even what sort of Kate touched upon. Um, but just sort of tell us a little bit more about how making race visible in Maine uh, contributes to the pursuit of liberation. Thank you for uh, giving us that. It was that was um, really really good to hear hear both of your both of your stories. I came to Maine, I guess maybe in two thousand two thousand three, and I, I I grew up in in Georgia, so my perspective was pretty much set in that area. Moving to Maine, I of course looked for black presence, even though the the lore of the state may not have necessarily had the black presence included. I knew that it was there all over this country, all over this this, this continent really. But it was not easy, you know, not necessarily easy to find. Jerry Jerry Talbot was working on a book called Maine's Visible Black History at the time. And he had lots of information for me to for me to start with. And upon re- seeing that, you know, seeing the work that he was doing and coming at this uh, from the perspective of an artist, I wanted to make this, make this story of the presence of Black people in Maine. Uh, I wanted to incorporate that into my artwork and find a way to, to make the story easier to tell, easier to uh, place us within this, within this state. Uh, not in a fleeting way, but in a, in a way that would continually add to the history and the layers of history as we move, as we move on out the, as we move out the century. So working with the local, a local group here, we began to create a series of markers that would mark places that had, um, that was significant to the abolitionist movement. And I say the abolitionist movement because that was uh that was the grounding for this. We did not want to necessarily couch it in slavery. We wanted to couch it in the struggle for the struggle for freedom. So we marked places that were significant to the to the abolitionist movement. And we marked sixteen places in Portland. Sixteen out of I think there were initial maybe 32 or, yeah, 32, maybe 32 or 36 sites. And from those sites, we were trying to give people a a way of seeing that there actually were Black people in the state of Maine because of the uh, longstanding belief that we did not exist in this place. Even I myself, when I moved here, thought that there would be you know, not much of a black population here. And the black population is small, yes, but we're here and it is an old population. So marking the marking the trail for for us was really important to not just for not just for our sake, but for people traveling through Maine. Maine is a tourist state and I think it's important that people coming through Maine Begin to rid themselves of that particular of that particular narrative that we do not exist in the state. 
Another thing that I worked on here, Kate mentioned it earlier, Malaga Island. And upon learning that story, which, uh, which consists of a small island that's just a little bit north of Portland, where in, 19, in 1912, all of the black and mixed race, uh, black, white, mixed race inhabitants were removed, were, you know, forcibly removed from the island. And it's a story of, that's a, it's a very complicated story that had not been told, again, coming at this at, from an artist, from the point perspective of an artist. It gave me a, a great freedom, a freedom of creativity to express the emotion, the emotions that I felt about this without having to be, uh, burdened by the facts because the facts were delivered from another source. For one thing, the facts were growing. You know, the facts were were not a static thing. And by having, by feeling that I was working with a team, a team of researchers, that allowed me to work as an artist more freely, I felt. And so since then, I've always leaped at the opportunity to work with such uh, such, such researchers. Just to, I guess, tie that all and bring this to a more uh, contemporary sort of a uh, sort of place is I want to tell you a, a very a personal story. I guess it's um, it's a personal story that I that I've only told. I guess I've only told one other person because it's, it was really embarrassing to me. I grew up in a black community uh, that was very segregated. In, uh, in South Georgia. And when I was really young, someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said I wanted to be a convict. And I said I wanted to be a convict because from where, where we live, that is who I saw. I saw, I saw convicts working on the road groups of men, they were people who I knew. I was not afraid of them. They were, they, you know, I, you know, yell out and talk to them and yell out things to them. I wasn't afraid of, I didn't see them as any, any different from on the other side of the road, people who I also knew working in the field, doing the same kind of work, except the convict got to drive a big, ride away in a big truck. You know, and 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 the other people in the field just got to go back home. So there was I didn't see that separation. And so I wanted to be with these guys, you know, who were over there, you know, talking and having conversation with each other. And it was because that was the only that was the only thing I saw. Nothing else was uh, was placed in front of me. And the and the condition of the people who were incarcerated was so similar to the condition of the people who were not incarcerated that I, my young mind, did not see a difference there. Uh huh. And uh, I'll leave that one. I'll leave it at that. Uh, thank you for sharing that, that Daniel, as you were, um, as you were speaking, you know, it was sort of like thinking about, right, you know, 
you articulating how your young young mind was working, right? That like level of analysis to actually sort of say, I think that kind of forces us to question, like, what does freedom mean? You know, <laughs> you know, and you saw that as a child, right? Like, like what does what does freedom actually mean if the conditions, the life conditions of Black folks, look so eerily similar, right? And and I think those type of analytical tools are incredibly, you know, invaluable. You know, as, as sort of you're you're doing your work and really confronting, right, the, the noticeable absence of Blackness, right, sort of pushing against, right, this is sort of easy acceptance of we're not here, when in fact, right, we've been here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what what are the histories that we need to tell uh, to, to sort of kind of speak to the, to to how that happens, right? That's not a natural, right, uh, con- you know, construction of the world. Like, how did that happen? How did Black people become invisible in me, right? And I think sort of the work that Kate does would have showed us that was an active process, right? There's nothing sort of natural about that, right? Um, right, the work that sort of Lydia is doing, right, sort of shows us that even when people are, right, bringing together, right, uh, you know, popular narratives, um, you know, artistry and evidence, right? The way that that gets pushed to the margin, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I, I wanted to sort of, you know, take these last, you know, moments and just kind of having an open discussion. You already sort of touched on a lot of this um, about how you see, you know, the, the, the relevance of your work, right, playing out, um, you know, and the abolitionist, abolitionist organizing going on today in Maine, um, because it, it is developing and I think becoming a little bit um, more robust. So either, you know, kind of directly or in regards to sort of some of the tools that we need, things that we need to think through, if you all want to expand on some of the things you said earlier, um, I think it, I think it would, you know, be sort of beneficial uh, to think about, you know, how the work that you're doing, you know, sort of ties to, to the contemporary moment. One of the things that I comes home to me again, listening to all of this is something that in this book that she wrote in 1833, Lydia Mariah Child had a chapter in which she excoriated Northerners for the racial prejudice in the North that allowed slavery to continue in the South. And this was part of what made the book so unpopular, right? that she was laying blame at the feet of Northerners who like to think of themselves as not complicit and as not involved in slavery, which is the kind of thing that um, both Kate and Daniel's work shows is absolutely not true. And one of the one of my favorite um, quotes from her on this in that chapter is she just said, let us not flatter ourselves. And that became a sort of mantra for her. Like, what can we, especially um, those of us who are white, continue to do to make sure that we're never flattering ourselves and we're always pursuing the truth, um, however unflattering it is. Um, And I'll just mention what I I know all of you are aware of as far as Maine's involvement in the slave trade, the fact that Maine became a state in 1820 in exchange for the expansion of slavery in Missouri as part of the Missouri Compromise. And those were actually in the years that child was living in Maine as a teenager. And so sometimes people wonder, like, how did she, what kind of laid the groundwork for her to be able to recognize the problem uh, in the North in particular. And I think it had to have been 
in part that she was present in Maine as people were debating whether Maine's own freedom, right, <laughs> having been in captivity to Massachusetts, um, whether Maine's own freedom was worth trading the enslavement, the expansion of slave enslavement in Missouri. And Maine's legislators ultimately decided that it was. Maine's independence was more important than preventing the spread of slavery in Missouri. So I think that's another part of the story around slavery that Maine, that we've inherited, that insofar as Maine benefits from being a state, that's in part because our becoming a state uh, was on the back of the expansion of slavery in the South. I want to read a, a newspaper, a short newspaper article from uh, November 29, 1857, um, out of the New York Herald. And I think it's kind of hammers home what you're talking about uh, in terms of the perception of the savior perception sort of complex that we have over New England's role in ending slavery versus what was actually happening. And, you know, it's the same time that the debates are happening in 1820 about whether or not Maine is going to be a state, whether slavery is going to be expanded into the Western territories, there's also an ongoing debate about the illicit slave trade. And so the very same days sometimes over Maine, you know, these discussions that are happening in Congress over Maine statehood, there's also discussions over whether or not they're going to pass the Act of 1820. The Act of 1820 was a, a subsequent uh, legislation there was the first, the Act of 1808, which was the first act that barred uh, Americans participating in the uh, foreign slave trade, as well as the bringing of uh, enslaved people from Africa to the United States. But they didn't put any, they, they didn't really put a whole lot of penalty behind it. They didn't, uh, they didn't allocate any money towards prosecuting people. They didn't allocate a Navy. And so what you end up seeing is completely lawless between 1808 and 1820. It doesn't stop it at all. It just continues to rise. And so in 1818, uh, there is uh, a law passed that that further penalizes um, Americans bringing enslaved Africans to the United States. There's another law passed in 1819. And finally, they say in 1820, okay, this is, this is piracy. They make it piracy. So we have, when I see things like, you know, the pi people talking about pirates, I think, I think slave traders, because slave traders, you know, were pirates. Uh, but this article from 1857, I think, hammers home just how deeply, not only did, was, were we involved, New England involved, but everybody knew. And so it was in every newspaper. And we have collective, we are collective memory around this subject has been shaped such that we have intentionally forgotten it. There's no way that this was not an intentional process of forgetting over you know, the last 150 years. So it says, three of the slave vessels recently captured and taken into Havana are said to have been built with Boston, Portland capital. And when captured, Eastern people were on board as officers and part of the cruise. Another of the vessels has been owned by parties in Massachusetts, Maine, and New York, and was sold with the knowledge that she was intended for the slave trade. One had 460 Africans on board and another 116. Let not the slave oligarchy despair. So long as Northern men can be found to carry on the African slave trade, there will be no difficulty in keeping up a pro-slavery political party at the North 
under the stimulus of the spoils of office. And I think this is such a, you know, perfectly encapsulates the fact that the slave trade was wildly uh, continuing during this time period. And a lot of that had to do with our own capitalist consumption of slave produced goods. So, you know, goods that were produced by enslaved people, such as cotton and sugar, and, um, you know, other things that were funding, funding our economy in the North. I mean, Portland was the second largest importer of sugar in the entire country in, eight, in the 1850s. Uh, we made them the vast majority of rum. Obviously, some folks from Portland, people might know the rum riots, where there was a, a riot over the lack of rum uh, in the 18, 1850s. So, um, you know, these are deeply, deeply entangled with our, you know, industrial revolution in northern New England. So it's not just shipbuilding, it's also the mills and, um, you know, the, the, other industries, banks, I mean, many of these folks uh, were, were connected to local banks like Casco Bay Bank, um, which goes on uh, to become, you know, many of them go on to become banks that are still in existence today. So um, this is, is, is deeply, it's disturbing to me that in, in a lot of ways that we have forgotten, um, that we have intentionally uh that we have intentionally forgotten this. And I think it speaks a lot to the contemporary experience of people of color in Maine. Um, and it, it certainly speaks to, to what happened on place, in places like Malaga Island. Why did that happen? That did not happen out of nowhere. You know, that eviction of those people was not something that just one day they decided to evict these people. It was decades, you know, two centuries, three centuries of buildup that led to that point of what happened there. Um, and I think we still see those resonances today when we when we look at even just um, the huge, Maine has one of the worst COVID disparities in the country for people of color, you know, much higher rates of death and disease among, among Maine's, um, you know, Black population. So what does that mean? What, what is happening still in our state that is leading to um, these contemporary, contemporary issues of racism and social injustice? Right. And, the, and, and I appreciate you speaking to it, the willful ignorance and accompanied by the sort of self-congratulatory um, nature that comes along with, you know, actually just sort of taking a moment uh, to, to confront it, which is, you know, necessary, but far from sufficient. Right. And so how do we get to that point of it being sufficient? Uh, Daniel, go ahead. You were going to say something. No, I, I was just I was simply going to say that uh, it's uh, well, you, you talk about the um, the idea that uh, they they have forgot they forget. Uh, not this, I don't think it's that anyone necessarily forgets about this. I think it's built into the way of thinking that if it's profitable, then it's um, then that is reason enough. It is it is for profit, and you uh, and when you look at the the the, the huge uh, disparities of of, uh, of COVID cases, and you look at uh, Brazil right now, and you look at uh, Bolsonaro, who's who's even though the the cases there are are increasing greatly. They, there's still no great concern 
because there's a, there's profit involved. And you look around at uh, at the profit uh, that has been made over you know over the last year or so, and there has there have been gains. There have been uh, uh, I mean some some people have really really benefited from the conditions of this. And then you look at the um, the the states that uh, that want to build uh, prisons, you know, well, uh, you know, while the uh, while crime is going down, has been going down. Uh, there's that it's the profit, you know, that outweighs, you know, the the impact on the people or the impact on communities. And we have been, you know, trained. To think of the profit first, um, and that be the the that be enough for justifying uh, someone else uh, someone else's suffering. Um, the reasons for people for for men being men and women being in prison are 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 very are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and the systems that are uh, put in place to to keep them there longer and longer uh, because they there's a cost there's a cost to them being there uh, there's a there's money to be made off of these people and even even after they are even after they're out of prison you know even after they're back on the street there's still uh, money to be made from them so. Uh, just uh, so I don't think that you know that that we forget. I think that we you know I think that it's it's part of the way you know we think in this country. No, that's all right. We we use justification, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, I, and I think Daniel, you you know you you already got us started on on kind of the question I wanted to to wrap up with is um. You know, for for each of you, what do you imagine an abolitionist name to look like? Well, I would just say that uh, I I imagine actually I imagine it to be a place without. Uh, I don't even I don't even think of the 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 state really. It's it, I I have a hard time thinking of a, an abolition an abolitionist name. I don't think that. Uh, I think it has to be the whole country. I don't think that one state can can do can do can do that. I think that uh, uh, if one state, you know, uh, wanted to uh, abolish prisons, I think the rest of the state would turn against them and and uh, or something. I think it has to be all. And um, and I also feel like prisons uh, could be replaced, you know, with uh, you know, you know, we can slowly merge our education system, uh, turn it, you know, and make it more. Uh, well, we'll take the funds from the prison system and put them toward more of an education system because uh, I know from the friends that uh, that I have who have been uh, institutionalized in that way, uh, I feel like, uh, well, I feel like. Some of them, the education system failed. Uh, 
And by failed, I don't mean that that they were not educated. I do not mean that they were not smart and very, very intelligent. It's just that there, after they received their education, there was not uh, ample opportunity for them to uh, to apply. I I love the use of the word imagine here because I think part of what is both instructive and humbling to me about the history of abolition is that the people that child was writing for and herself too before she had this conversion experience I think it was literally impossible for them to imagine a world without slavery every time they tried there would be all of these arguments or as Daniel was pointing out, just these habits of thinking that had to do with profits or with safety or with um, religion or whatever, that whenever they tried to imagine a world without without slavery, these arguments and these habits of thinking would, I mean, in, in philosophy, we call them epistemic blockers, right? They're things that block you from knowing things. And I think, um, so for me, you know, imagining an uh, abolitionist Maine, you know, I don't really know in part because I haven't cured myself of some of those bad habits of thinking yet. And I, this is part of why I also think art is so important. Artists can help us imagine beyond the words that philosophers like me are really used to depending on. Um, but I think part of what someone like child would try to do she she wrote a column at a certain point just called the abc's of abolitionism and it was just a kind of catalog of responses to bad arguments that anybody could use in order just to try to dismantle some of the power that those arguments or objections had and i think she did think of it as a way of freeing the imagination from those bad arguments to allow people to embrace what they think they want anyway, which if you're an American, is all humans created equal and life liberty in the pursuit of happiness, right? So one thing she would say over and over again is if you really believe in American ideals the way you think you do, um, then let's get some of the, rid of some of these bad arguments and habits of thinking that are keeping you from imagining how that could be, how those ideals could actually be accomplished. Yeah, and I think for for me, I, you know, I, I imagine a, a future where people know their history. Uh, you know, I mean, that's really what's important to me in this conversation is, is we don't know what we don't know. So how can we make sure that future generations of Mainers truly understand this history? How can we invest in the present in trying to understand this history now so that the future generations can have the the knowledge to break these systems, uh, to to destroy to destroy these forms of of modern slavery, of of forced labor. I mean, this is not just an American issue. Uh, it's it's an issue that is across the world. We see this in many different contexts uh, and and many different forms of this sort of same struggle. And, you know, I think that we have an opportunity right now, given, given our historical moment, given the conversations that we've been having nationally, especially in the last year, uh, and really the last, you know, five or 10 years since Black Lives Matter really began to take hold, is how can we 
how can we educate ourselves, particularly white people, can, can learn this history and really learn what privilege means and, and, and how we continue to uphold these systems of inequality in the present by having prisons, by, by having economic conditions that send people to prison and, and the laws that we have and, you know, all of these different forms of injustice. Thank you so much, Kate. Uh, so in this last moment, I just want to thank uh, Lydia, Kate, Daniel for joining us on this first podcast. Uh, Catherine, thank you for organizing this. Uh, please join us next week uh, for free- the Freedom and Captivity uh, podcast episode, which will have a conversation with Joseph Jackson from Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition about the concept of accountability in relationship to harm and punishment. Uh, this episode and future episodes will be available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Freedom and Captivity website, and the Portland Media Center website. We'd also like to thank the Portland Media Center for sponsoring this podcast series. Mm-hmm.